Welcome to the Gospel Saves Podcast, a program that discusses all matters related to the Christian faith. Please visit thegospelsaves.me. You can also visit The Gospel Saves on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Do we inherit Adam's sin? As we observe the world around us, two things are glaringly obvious. We can experience a tremendous amount of beauty and joy, but the second observation is the exact opposite. There is an ugliness to life, pain and suffering and trouble. The Bible tells us why good is marred by evil. Evil exists because of sin and the consequence of sin, death. Evil was injected into the human experience when the father of our race, Adam, took a bite from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Scripture holds Adam responsible for our present condition. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verses like Romans 5.12 have led some to conclude that we inherit Adam's sin, what is often called the doctrine of original sin. According to my Catholic friends, original sin may be taken to mean the sin that Adam committed and a consequence of this first sin, the hereditary stain with which we are born on account of our origin or descent from Adam. The Second Council of Orange in 529 AD concluded, One man has transmitted to the whole human race not only the death of the body, which is the punishment of sin, but even sin itself, which is the death of the soul. So the doctrine of original sin not only teaches that we inherit the consequence for Adam's sin, death, but we also inherit the guilt for Adam's sin. Without question, God subjected us to a host of consequences because of Adam's sin. When Adam disobeyed the command of God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, several important things happened. Scripture says their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. Adam and Eve awakened a new level of self-awareness. They knew themselves in an entirely new way at this moment. It's my belief that at this moment they awakened what Scripture describes as our conscience, our capacity to discern good and evil. Having activated their conscience through disobedience, Adam and Eve experienced the effects of a guilty conscience. They felt shame and covered their nakedness and hid from the presence of God. For the first time, they also felt fear. When God asked, Where are you? Adam responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Weakened by his sin, Adam fled from accountability. Adam blamed God for giving him Eve, and he blamed Eve for giving him the fruit. Without question, we suffer the consequences of our father's choice. The arousal of the conscience, the heightened self-awareness, the awakening of fleshly desires, the sense of separation from God. But there is a difference between guilt and consequences. 
if I was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, I would not be guilty for my mother's choices, but I would suffer the consequences for her choices. Or if I built a building with a design flaw, and one day it collapsed because of my error, injuring the people within, I would be guilty of the error, even though it was unintentional. But the injured would suffer consequences for my errors. In terms of what the Bible teaches, death is the consequence of sin. When the intent of the thoughts of our heart was only evil continually, leading us to fill the earth with violence, God sentenced the world to death by a flood in Genesis chapter 6. In Romans 6.23, Paul concludes, For the wages of sin is death. James says death is the ultimate end of sin, James chapter 1, verse 15. Death entered because of Adam's sin. In his final condemnation of Adam, God proclaims, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And unfortunately, we continue to pay this particular consequence for Adam's sin. Like Adam, the fear of death lingers on and is ever with us. But that does not mean God holds us guilty for Adam's sin. While we may suffer the consequences for Adam eating the fruit, I see no reason to believe we are born with the guilt of Adam's sin. I do not believe we inherit guilt for sin based on what Ezekiel 18 teaches. The prophet Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. He lived and prophesied among the captive Jews in a different part of Babylon. Early on in their captivity, a popular proverb circulated among the people. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Ezekiel 18.2 Here is what they meant by the proverb. Our fathers sinned and it's their fault we are in captivity. God spends Ezekiel 18 teaching a simple lesson. The guilt for sins does not transmit from one generation to the next. The soul which sins shall die, God begins in verse 4, and he follows that verse with a series of examples of fathers and sons from three generations. The first is righteous, the second is wicked, the third generation is righteous. God concludes in verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Neither righteousness nor sin transmits from one generation to the next. We cannot pass on guilt for sin. So when I was born, I did not inherit either righteousness or unrighteousness. Was I subject to the consequences of Adam's sin? Absolutely. I had a brother born a year after me who only lived 12 days because of a heart defect. Did he have a heart defect because of some sin my parents committed? No, he had a heart defect because he was born into a world where death reigns. Did he die guilty of Adam's sin? No, Scripture says the son shall not bear the guilt of the father. My brother Kurt died because the consequence for Adam's sin, for you are dust and to dust you shall return, 
remains in full effect. But I find no scriptural reason to believe any of us inherit the guilt for Adam's sin. We are all subject to the consequences of Adam's sin, but we do not inherit the guilt for his sin. The doctrine of original sin led to a Protestant doctrine known as total depravity. The thinking behind total depravity goes something like this. We were created in the image of God and as such possessed the full measure of all good spiritual things. Because of Adam's transgression, all mankind inherits the guilt of his sin, his condemnation, and an irresistible sinful nature, which is, in a nutshell, the doctrine of original sin. But total depravity takes it a step further. It says this irresistible sinful nature makes us incapable of choosing to pursue righteousness and godliness of our own free will. In order to save us, God uses the Holy Spirit to change our sinful hearts, known as irresistible grace, and because of that change, we are able to believe and obey. Now, total depravity is a step beyond original sin. Total depravity essentially claims the guilt for Adam's sin that we inherit kills the gift of free will. In Psalm 51.5, Those who believe in total depravity point to the statement, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, as evidence of Adam's taint upon mankind. To begin with, this interpretation assumes David was born in a legitimate relationship. When we are introduced to David, he is a bit of an afterthought, not only in his brother's minds, but also in his father's mind. David is not summoned to meet with Samuel, and judging by how the Bible describes his appearance, he does not seem to fit in with the family. Since we know nothing about David's mother, is it possible I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me indicates that David was an illegitimate child born out of wedlock? But for the sake of argument, let's assume David was legitimate, that he was a legitimate child. Because of the circumstances under which this psalm was written, David's conviction of sin with Bathsheba, we must classify this as an example of the literary device called hyperbole, an exaggeration that's often used in Scripture. For example, in Psalm 58, verse 3, the psalmist says, The wicked are dishonest from the day of their birth. Now, do the wicked literally speak lies as soon as they come out of the womb? Or in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul calls himself the foremost sinner. Was Paul literally the greatest sinner the world had ever known? Thus, when we think about David's statements in Psalm 51 and 5, these don't indicate that we inherit Adam's taint. Rather, they are a hyperbolic, an exaggerated expression of a broken and contrite heart. David was guilty of terrible crimes, and he felt that guilt deeply. Those who believe in total depravity believe Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 proves that man was unwilling, incapable, and uninterested in pursuing godliness. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. 
According to their belief, mankind lacks the capacity to pursue righteousness and godliness apart from Jesus Christ. Now, it's worth noting that just a few verses earlier, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, Paul demonstrates human beings are capable of seeking after God, even in the absence of divine revelation. They do so, according to Paul, by nature, by following the dictates of their conscience. If the Holy Spirit was required in order to pursue righteousness, if we cannot do what's right of our own free will, Paul's argument in those four verses makes no sense whatsoever. But back to chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. In my estimation, this passage does not demonstrate man's inability to pursue righteousness. Rather, it demonstrates man's inability to achieve righteousness without Jesus Christ. Can we pursue God's righteousness out of our own free will? Yes, the Old Testament is filled with men and women who chose to pursue God by their own volition. Noah, Job, Joshua, Daniel, and the list goes on. But can we achieve righteousness on our own? No. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapters 1 through 3. Even the best among us, who do pursue God's righteousness of our own free will, we cannot attain righteousness apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. So just like there is a difference between guilt and consequences, so too there is a difference between the pursuit of righteousness and attaining righteousness. We can choose of our own free will to pursue righteousness, but we will not attain it apart from the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the Gospel Saves podcast. If you found this program useful, please visit thegospelsaves.me to find blogs, videos, and Bible studies. If you enjoyed the music on this podcast, please visit acapeldridge.com. You can also find Acapeldridge on Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, and Facebook. May God bless you as you seek to know His perfect will.